So last Sunday, we saw Jesus and his disciples uh, back, heading back into Jerusalem on a Wednesday morning, Wednesday morning of the final week that Jesus was on earth. On Monday, you'll remember that he rode on the back, back of a donkey from Bethany into Jerusalem to the temple to the shouts of Hosanna, save us now, son of David. And he, he was receiving the praise and the glory, which was his due, which he accepted, and rightly so. And on Tuesday, as he and his disciples made their way back into Jerusalem uh, from Bethany, Jesus sees a fig tree along the side of the, tro- uh, side of the road, and as, because he was hungry, he went over, he wanted some figs. He saw a tree there with leaves, had no figs. And if you remember, if it, a fig tree has leaves, it ought to already have the, have the figs on it. And Jesus, seeing that, sees a picture, an example of Israel, full of leaves, a lot of religious activity with no fruit, without salvation because they did not truly know God. So as an object lesson, he cursed the tree and would not allow it to grow, bear any fruit. And in so doing, he curses Israel and all of its religious activity. He then goes into the temple, clears it out. He cleanses his house. He cleanses the house of his father. And in so doing, he denounces their form of worship because that's all it was. It was a form without really touching God. He then spent the rest of the day there, and it was, it was a long day, healing people, hundreds of people, ministering to them, which could only be done in a place that had been cleansed. Then on Wednesday, as he headed back into Jerusalem, once again, they passed that fig tree that was there, there on the side of the road, and the, the disciples were amazed. It was dead. Yesterday it was alive. Today it's dead, withered from the roots up. And Jesus teaches a second much-needed lesson to the disciples, and that was on the prayer of faith and how if you are, faith will then activate the power of God. They could have the same power that he was using. They then... On that same morning, after passing that fig tree, went, continued into Jerusalem and again went directly to the temple and ended up having a major confrontation with the religious leaders. And we're, that confrontation takes a while, and we're going to be li- looking at the first part of that. And that's what we're looking at today. So we want to take a look at our passage this morning in Matthew chapter 21, and we're reading from verses 23 to 32. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's John's baptism, verse 25, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? Well, they discussed it among themselves and said, uh, if we say from heaven, he'll ask, then why didn't you believe in him? But if we say of human origin, we are afraid of the people, for they hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. What do you think? Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. 
I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and he went. Then the father went to the second son, the other son, and said to the same, same thing. And he answered, I will, sir. But he didn't go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? Well, the first they answered. And Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. So the issue this morning is authority. Now the word authority is a strong word. Uh, When you hear the word authority, there's a certain force about that word. Uh, There may even be a certain uh, intimidation uh, about the word. When we talk about the authorities, it comes with a certain sense of respect, a sense of awe perhaps, maybe even a sense of fear, depending on the circumstances. The word authority denotes permission, privilege, uh, power, rule, control, influence. When someone has authority, that means there is a certain power of influence that they have over a particular group of people. They have a responsibility beyond the norm. They're able to determine things, to decide things, to render judgment, to wield certain rights and privileges. You see, authority is everywhere. Uh, We have it in the home, we have it in town, we have it in the city, we have it in in states, we have it in the nation when it comes to the government. You see it in social groups, you see it in schools, you see it in uh, in businesses, you see it in churches, you see it in denominations. It's everywhere. But once an authority figure steps out of their authority structure, however, their authority is gone. They are a normal person just like everybody else. But there is one who has authority that surpasses all authorities. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's an amazing claim to power, to permission, to right. And the authority of Jesus was demonstrated in his ministry all through the three years that he was among the people. You remember when Jesus finished his Sermon on the Mount back in Matthew chapter 7? It says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. How do the teachers of the law teach? Well, they just kind of repeated what other teachers said. They quoted other teachers. They, they referred back to the old rabbis of, of ancient days. They had no basic thought of their own. But Jesus didn't quote anybody except perhaps himself when he quoted Scripture. That's what the people were amazed at. He spoke and taught on his own. In Matthew 9, he healed a paralyzed man and he forgave sin. And the crowd saw it and they marveled and glorified God uh, who had given such authority to man. Jesus backed up his words with action. He had the authority to heal. He had the authority to forgive sin. And they were amazed. And then in Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, again in Capernaum, the beginning of his ministry, he taught in the synagogue. And it says the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. They saw this stark difference. And right after that, he confronted a demon-possessed man and cast out the spirit and healed him. And it says the people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. 
He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. It just boggled their minds. People also saw his authority over nature as he walked on water, as he calmed the storm, as he cursed that fig tree and it withered from roots up. He had authority in the physical world. He had authority in the spiritual world. Uh, Even the evil spirits had to obey him. He had authority over life and death as he raised Peter's mother-in-law from the dead, as he raised the, the son of the widow from the dead, as he raised Lazarus from the dead. And to top it off, he had authority over his own life. No one takes it from me, Jesus says in John 10. But I lay it down of my own accord, and I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And that was a problem for the religious leaders. Because they believed that they were the authorities. They believed that they had the authority, and that authority was being threatened by this guy by the name of Jesus. Now, in thinking about the authority of Christ, there are two words, Greek words, that we need to look at just uh, very briefly. The first word is dunamis. You've heard that before. Dunamis, which uh, the Bible translates as power. And the second word is exousia, which is a, the Bible translates as authority. So dunamis or power is the ability to do something, and exousia or authority is the right to do it. And when Jesus said he had all authority, not only did he have the power, but he had the God-given privilege, the God-given right to exercise that power. And the multitudes were always amazed But the leaders, they were distressed, they were appalled, they were outraged that he acted without their approval, without their authorization. But Jesus was his own authority given to him by the Father. He never had or needed authorization from men for anything that he did. And by ignoring their whole system of authorization, that set up conflict. All through his ministry, he's in conflict with the existing authorities in the Jewish community. And here in Matthew 21, it comes to a head in a very severe conflict. In fact, it begins here in verse 23 of chapter 21, and this confrontation goes all the way through the end of chapter 23. So this is a long, drawn-out conflict. Um, Long morning of confrontations and it fans of flames that ultimately lead to the crucifixion. So let's take a look at how that confrontation started. Verse 23 of Matthew. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? So they were all bent out of shape because Jesus was speaking and acting with authority without their authority. Matthew tells us that this confrontation took place in the temple courts. Now you'll remember this, uh, this gra- graphic here. You remember that the temple had a huge outside courtyard called the Court of the Gentiles. 
and surrounding it were all these high walls and pillars, and people would mill, mill all, all around. Especially during the time of the Passover, there would be hundreds, perhaps thousands of people, packed into that, uh, that court area. And you can probably imagine, now that the temple had been cleansed, had been cleaned out the day before, I would think that even more people may have come just to see if what it looked like after Jesus had done the cleansing, and perhaps even just maybe this Jesus would be there again, and maybe we could hear him or see what he's going to do today. And sure enough, he was there, and what did he do this time? Verse 23 tells that he was teaching. You see, once the temple was cleansed, true ministry could happen. Once the temple was cleansed, true teaching and understanding could take place. And it's the same way in any church. Once a true spiritual cleansing takes place on the inside, true worship and ministry can happen through the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you would read the parallel account in Mark chapter 11, talking about the same incident, verse 27, Mark says, while Jesus was walking in the temple courts. So he was walking around among the crowd and teaching. Well, do we know what he was teaching? Wouldn't that be fascinating? Well, actually we do. Isn't that interesting? Over in Luke chapter 20, verse 1, you would hear Luke say, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news. He was proclaiming the good news. He was preaching the coming of the kingdom of heaven. He was preaching repentance. He probably had some fire and brimstone preaching there about the results of being disobedient and rejecting God and the blessings of turning to God in obedience uh, with resulting in eternal life that was available. And as usual, the people were listening. The people were fascinated. In fact, Luke chapter 19, verse 47 tells us every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. They loved it. The religious leaders could see a religious revolution in the process here taking place. They were basically in a state of panic and they wanted him dead and so they, they intervene while Jesus is teaching, and they confront him to stop the teaching, stop what he's doing there. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you that authority? Show us your ordination papers. Show us your credentials. Show us your, your Sanhedrin approval. Show us your Sanhedrin authorization. And that's the same question they asked him way back in the beginning of the ministry in John chapter 2, the first time he cleansed the temp- temple. Who gave you the authority to do that? They were outraged then. They're even more outraged now. So that was a confrontation. Now let's look at the counter question that that comes from Jesus. Verse 24, Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. This was actually a very typical rabbinical practice, answering a question with a question. Jesus wasn't evading the question. He's actually giving them an opportunity to be actually honest. You see, they knew. They knew by what authority he was speaking and doing these things. They had heard him say a number of times that he did only what his father told him to do. I think they wanted him to say it again. 
to say it again in front of the multitude, in front of the crowds of people there at Passover, and then they would have a reason to accuse him of blasphemy and to have their excuse to kill him. But as usual, Jesus didn't fall into their trap. And he says, if you answer my question, I'll answer yours. And here's the question, verse 25. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? That's a fair question. I mean, John the Baptist, a voice crying in the wilderness, uh, out beyond Jordan, prepare the peop- preparing the people for the Messiah. Everybody knew about him. Uh, what he was doing swept all the way through Galilee. The, the last prophet of the Old Testament, uh, a great man. Uh, he had been out there, and all Israel had been going to him. And he, he had been saying, the Messiah is near, the Messiah is coming, prepare the way. Uh, he was preaching repentance, and the people were confessing their sin, turning to God, and they were getting their heart, hearts right with God. And then he was baptizing them in the Jordan River, and all the nation was flocking to him in excitement about what was going on. And his demeanor, and his power, and the way he was preaching, and what he was preaching, all said that he was a prophet from God, and the people believed it. There is no doubt in their mind. So Jesus says, so you tell me then, was the ministry of John the Baptist from God or was it from men? That's a predicament for them. Because here they are with this big contingent of priests, Sadducees and Pharisees, the temple guard, uh, guards with all of their fancy garb that they, that they wore. And they were surrounded by the throngs of people that were there taking all of the teachings of Jesus in and being amazed by Jesus' words and his works. People who, in their minds, knew that John had been a great prophet of God. So if they said he wasn't a prophet to avoid having to say Jesus was the Messiah, they would lose their credibility with the people. If they say he was a prophet of God, then they put themselves in a position to have to accept Jesus' message. That's a problem for them. Difficult question. So they called a huddle. And I can just see them running over to the corner here. Okay, let's talk about this. What are we going to do? What are we going to say? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he'll say, well, then, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we are afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. What do we do? So here's a brilliant answer of this large group of religious leaders in Israel. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. What a bunch of wimps. (laughs) Seriously, they knew. They knew. They had seen the evidence. They had heard his teachings. They themselves had to have been amazed over the past three years about how he would taught, what he taught, and what they saw him doing and the power that he was exercising. But they chose to ignore all the evidence because they would not, they could not, they refused to be put in a position where they would have to admit that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. Their hearts had become so hard. Then Jesus said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. They had rejected the light, and he turned it off. That was the end for them. Basically, he was saying, I have nothing more to say to you. Nothing more. The opportunities for them were gone 
were done. In fact, in, in uh, chapter 23, verse 33, he calls them out. He says, you snakes, you brood of vi- vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? And the answer was, you won't. You won't. In verse 38, look, your house is left to you desolate. Desolate. It's over. The lights have been turned out. It's gone. And when he was confronted before Caiaphas in Matthew chapter 26, it says, and Jesus held his peace. Never a word. He had nothing more to say to them. And in Matthew chapter 27, it says, when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Finished. That's a scary place to be in. And they didn't even know it. They had rejected him so long that he finally rejected them. All the way back in Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, when God saw the wickedness of man, he said, my spirit will not contend with humans forever. In Hosea chapter 4, verse 17, God said, the tribe of Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave them alone. He said, I'm done with them. In Isaiah chapter 63, verse 10, talking about Israel, his own chosen people, God said they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit, so he turned and became their enemy, and he himself fought against them. That's the point to which these religious leaders standing before Jesus had gotten to. It was a terrifying moment, and they didn't know it. You remember when Jesus was entering Jerusalem as the humble king, the shouts of Hosanna, and, the, and the, these religious leaders tell, tell, tell the crowds to be quiet. Luke tells us that he looked out over Jerusalem and he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Done. He was saying, I'm done contending with you. And he pronounced a devastating judgment on Jerusalem on that day. Folks, they had committed the unpardonable sin. Yes, there is such a thing. The unpardonable sin is when you rebel against God so hard and so long that your heart turns to stone and it rejects Jesus Christ and God said, that's it, I am done. My spirit will not contend with humans forever. Jesus himself said in John 3.18, Whoever believes in me is not condemned, but whoever does not believe me stands condemned already. The unpardonable sin. Because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So we saw the confrontation, and then then we had the counter-question here by Jesus to, to these Pharisees, to the religious rulers. And though he has nothing more to say to them about the light and about the kingdom, he certainly has more to say to them about judgment. And so in verse 28, he sees, we see how he characterizes these religious leaders. What do you think, he asks them. And he wants them to think seriously what he's about to say. There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing, and he answered, I will, sir, but did not go. It's a simple parable. The first son initially rebels and said, no way, I'm not going to do that. I want to do my own thing. And then later, sees the light, repents. 
and uh, sees how wrong he was, and he turns from his own will, from his own desires, and the things that he wanted to do, and he does go back and do what his father wants him to. The second son says, sure, Dad, no problem. I'll get right to it. And he goes off and does his own thing. And he disobeys. He's verbally obedient, but in his heart and actions, he's disobedient. He disobeys. What do you think, Jesus says? Which of the two did what his father wanted? Ah, that's an easy one, thought the Pharisees. The first they answered. They probably should have huddled up and discussed this before, before answering here. You know that, that, that uh, uh, idiom that said, be sure brain is engaged before putting mouth in gear? You know, they, they should have thought about that ahead of time. But they were probably so excited to be able to answer one of his questions in, in their minds without being indicted by their own answer. <laughs> but it did. And here's a connection. Here's a connection that Jesus is making. Here's how he applies a story to them. And it's devastating. When they said it was a first son, I mean, that, that, that's obvious, right? He's, he, uh, he said he wouldn't go and do, do it at first, but then he ended up doing the Father's will and pleasing the Father. Their answer uh, set them up, however, for Jesus' rebuke. And that comes in verse 32. He says, Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Can you imagine the shock on their faces? That had to be shocking to them. I mean, they were the religious elite. How dare he say that? They were living under the illusion that God was thrilled with them because of their piety, because of all their exercise, because of their religious religiosity and, and all the things that they did. And tax, and collector, tax collectors and harlots? Oh, goodness, that was a proverbial statement referring, referring to the scum of society. And Jesus says, you, in effect, are like the second son. You say, we will, but you never do. You pretend to obey God, but you never actually go into his vineyard. You never actually are, come under his terms. You're never actually obedient to him. On the other hand, there are the rebels of society, the tax collectors, the harlots, the, the scum of society, if you will. Those who start out rebelling, but then they repent and then do go into the vineyard and are obedient and are, uh, do have their eyes focused on the Father. That's a strong statement Jesus was saying here to them. By the way, he's not saying you're, you're, going, to, you're going to go in after these. They'll just be first and you'll be second. That's not the implication of all. The idea is that the others are going in and you're not. Why? Because they never get to the point of repentance. If you, can, if you can imagine a members-only club, and you can be at the front door and in line and waiting for the, the hour when those doors open, and you're standing there wanting to get in, you don't have a membership. The people that come in later that have their membership card, they're let in before you. That just means you're, not, you're still not getting in. They pass in front of you, and they're allowed in. And I don't know if you've ever thought it, but you know, heaven is kind of like a members-only club. Membership is free for us. There is a huge price to be paid for that membership, and it's open to all. The application is open to all. You have to sincerely apply, and you are given that membership. 
And the price is the blood of Jesus. Without that, we are going to be like the Pharisees, thinking we're going to get in, but those that have the membership of Jesus' blood, they're the ones who are going to enter. You see, religion doesn't get you into the kingdom. Attending church doesn't get you into the kingdom. Doing good Christian things doesn't get you into the kingdom. It's only through the acknowledgement of our sin and repentance and asking Jesus to be Lord, that's how we gain entrance. But the religious leaders never got that. And Jesus reminds them of that in his next statement. He says, For John came to, to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe. Jesus was indicting them on two counts here. First of all, count number one, not believing what you heard. John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. John preached repentance for sin. John preached that they they needed to prepare their lives for the coming of the Messiah, but they didn't believe a thing that he preached. They rejected him. They rejected the message. They rejected the Messiah. Count number two, not believing what you saw. The tax collectors and the prostitutes did believe, and even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. The tax collectors and prostitutes, the lowest of the low in their eyes, heard John, believed him, accepted the message, and repented, and their lives were transformed. And even when they saw these lives changed and transformed, they did not believe. They saw the evidence and refused it. They were without excuse, indicted on both counts, and judged by the creator of the world. Folks, even today, the message of Jesus Christ is available to all who want to hear it. The evidence of transformed lives is available to be seen by those who want to see. But over and above that, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Jesus doesn't want anyone to perish. That's why he came into the world. That's why he died on the cross. He wanted all to have eternal life. Jesus still loves the world. He died for them all, and that's why he is asking us as believers in Jesus Christ to step up and share his love with those that are around us. And I trust that this morning that we will not be counted among those religious rulers who play at being religious but had no heart change or no transformation, who are showing a lot of leaves but no figs. If we have made a true decision for Christ, we can say, it is well with my soul. We can be at peace. Think back to that parable that Jesus told of those two sons. Are you the obedient one? Or are you the disobedient one? There's only two choices. Are we submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you made that decision to be submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ? Or are we playing at church? Are we playing at Christianity? That's not going to get us there. We need to 
be fully committed to Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. The worship team is going to come this morning and lead us in singing, I Will Rise, which says, there's peace I've come to know. Isn't that neat? There is peace that I've come to know. Though my heart and flesh may fail, there's an anchor for my soul. I can say it is well. When Jesus calls, can we, will we rise and can we say it is well? Father, this morning we thank you for the peace that you have given to us, the peace that you have offered to us. And Father, for each one that is listening to this message today, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just open our hearts and open our minds, speak to us where we need to be spoken to. If there's an area in our lives that, uh, that you need to do some work in, Father, I pray that you would make that clear for us and that we would bow our heads in humility and say, Father, forgive me. I've been doing my own thing. I've been trying on my, in my own effort, in my own strength, hoping that, uh, trusting that I'm going to get to heaven in what I'm doing. The Father, if, if we're at that point, I pray that we'll come to that realization that all, all that counts for nothing when it comes to the entrance into the kingdom of God. But it's confessing our sin and asking you to be Lord. Do a new work in us, Father. And help us take that peace that we have and spread it to those that are around us because they need you as well. In Jesus' name, amen.